John chapter 12, where I actually can confidently say this week, we will wrap it up. If you're staying for the potluck, I might run into that time. No, I don't think I will. But a pivotal, a pivotal, pivotal chapter in this book, in this gospel, in this account of the life and ministry, the person and the work of Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, pivotal, why? Because up until now, we looked at, at the very first, I think it's the first 18 verses in chapter 1, is sort of a prologue. Uh, John lays out and kind of gives us a, a bit of an overshadowing or an overview of this gospel and what it's about, what it will be about, where he's going to go. And then from that point in chapter 1 all the way through the end of chapter 12 is, is the life and the ministry of Jesus, primarily focusing on the signs that he did and the things that he said. So as he's been doing this, he's been laying out for the people what it is that God's about, what this new deal is that God is doing. Remember, we looked at how John the Baptist starts out. He comes, he paves the way for Messiah there on the other side of the Jordan River. And, and he, he's saying, you know, it's time for the Messiah to come. I have come to usher in, essentially, he was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, come to usher in the Messiah, to, to set the table in that sense for Jesus to come onto the scene. And he indeed does. And we see that uh, the voice comes from heaven as he's baptized. And this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And, and then Jesus's ministry gets into full swing. It's been in full swing, his public ministry, from chapter 1 until the end of chapter 12, and this is the end of his public ministry. That's why it's pivotal. It's not the end of his ministry, but now what he will do after this is draw inward to his faithful followers. He's been reaching outward to the people in Israel, outward to the religious leaders even, loving them in the midst of their hatred towards him, Loving the people, showing them these signs, attesting miracles to attest to the fact that he's God. That's why over and over and over and over again we see that he says, I'm not doing this on my own. I'm doing this because the Father, my Father sent me. And I'm carrying out his wishes. We see that again in the text today. The reason for that is each time he does that, it's an attestation to his deity. He, he wants the people to see that if you're looking at Jesus, you're looking at God. Yes, the Father is a distinct person, the Son is a distinct person, the Spirit is a distinct person, three persons, one essence, essentially one God. That I don't understand how the Trinity works doesn't mean it's not so. I'm not going to be so arrogant as to think that, well, if I don't understand, and many have done this, if I don't understand it, then it must not be true. That's just not human, that's just, that's fallen thinking. That's just not the way to go about it. I mean, God is God. And so here we see Jesus manifest in these chapters, and we've looked at from the beginning of chapter 12, remember they had invited him to a dinner at Simon the leper's house, and, and Mary anointed his feet with the oil and, uh, and washed it with her hair, washed them with her hair, and, and, and Judas got upset about it, and he got rebuked, and then we went on, and, and Jesus goes on from there and, and comes into the city. He actually presents himself to Israel as Messiah. And, and just again, quick recap of chapter 12. And, and, and he knows that they're going to reject him. He is the Lamb of God. And, and he comes on the day of selection when they would select the Lamb, and then they would inspect it for four days, and then they would kill the Lamb at twilight, three in the afternoon, which was the time that he would give up his spirit. Uh, and we see that, again, prophetically, Pilate would be the one that would pronounce Jesus as clean. I find no fault in this man. And so we looked at all of that, and then we looked at 
that Jesus took off after he went up to the temple. The day that he rode in, he went up, he cleansed the temple, and then he began to heal. Uh, and, and the children were, were, were talking about him, and, and he's saying, out of the mouths of babes, the, the religious leaders are upset with him every step of the way. Every time he does something profoundly good, they get profoundly ticked, and they just it strengthens their resolve to kill him. And so here we are, we, we looked at that, we looked at when he was there between the Mount of Olives, or between Bethany and Jerusalem a couple of weeks ago, that, that he could look downrange and see Herodium, the, the man-made mountain, eight miles south of Jerusalem, and there he is, on, on, he's going from Bethany to Jerusalem, he stops, he curses the fig tree, which is Israel, it's symbolic of Israel, and, and the, 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 the leaves wither, and the guys say, wow, how did you make that shrink up so fast, paraphrasing, but that's what they said. And he said, if you just have faith, if you believe, you can do greater things than this. You could say to this mountain, and I personally believe, and, and again, it doesn't say, but that he pointed at Herodium, which was symbolic of all of the Hellenistic culture and the, 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 the godless, hedonistic culture that they were living in in the first century that was imported by Rome, strengthened by Rome. It was there in place before Rome came to power because it came from the Greek empire. And, and that he said, you could say to this mountain, be cast into the sea because you could see Herodium and the Dead Sea in the same spot where he would have been standing. So we've looked at that and the significance of that, looking at how they have this, they had this Hellenistic culture and we have this secular humanistic culture that we live in now. And we'll look at that a bit more this morning. So uh, as we've gotten to this point, we see now that he is saying the final things that he's going to say. We're going to recap just a couple of verses, three, I think, verses before we get into the text for this morning. And in recapping, we'll see that he really gives his closing remarks, his closing comments to the godless nation. And then the rest of this chapter, there are two summaries. Uh, that's why I've called this study Pause and Reflect. I, I picture John, he's an old man. He's probably 80 or 85 years old when he writes this gospel about maybe five to 15 years, it's, it's, the dates are a little sketchy, be before he writes the, the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, not Revelations, uh, that's just a bugs me. Uh, and if you say Revelations, then that's fine, I won't correct you, but I'll correct you from the pulpit. Because uh, <laughs> then I'm not making it personal. Uh, but it is Revelation, it is the singular revelation of Jesus Christ in glory. It's not revelations, like a whole bunch of revelations. There are revelations in there, but is, it's the apocalypse, the revelation. And I'm not going to do Harvey's study, just come tonight. So. But the point is, is that here we are, we're looking at this now. There are two summaries. There's a summary that, Jesus, or that John the, the Apostle gives as he's reflecting back now after Jesus' last comments that we'll look at here. John begins to reflect and he, he summarizes the ministry of Jesus. Uh, the public ministry. And then he quotes Jesus. He writes Jesus's own words and Jesus's summary of that ministry. And the public ministry here, again, at the end of chapter 12, it's done. We're going to write to the upper room in chapter 13. I'm really excited about that as well. So anyway, uh, he's been going along for three plus years talking and speaking with authority showing, demonstrating the power of God to these people. Uh, and he's brought this message of salvation, not salvation from Rome, not salvation from any other thing, but from ourselves is really the, the crux of the gospel. It's, it's, it's a message that's offensive to man. 
It's called, the Bible calls it the offense of the gospel because until you understand how bad it is, in other words, that you will die in your sin, you can't understand how good the good news is. And so he's been doing that. He's been demonstrating these miracles. He's been giving these sayings and all of that. It's interesting. I was thinking about it. If you think about all that had happened before rested upon the work that he did on that cross. And so all of history prior to Christ looked forward to him being the one that would take the sin, not just of the nation, but of the world. And since then, we look back. It, it, truly, the cross is the hinge point. It is the, it is the, the crux of humanity. Uh, so in verse 32, he talks about this thing. Uh, he says, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Remember, there was one other place that he talked about, that in John chapter 3, uh, where he's there with Nicodemus. Is it a little warm in here, Nick? Or is it just me? I said, is it warm in here or is it just me? It feels like it's getting hot in here. It's just me. I'm just full of hot air this morning. Um, anyway, in John chapter 3, uh, Jesus uses this term, lift it up. And, and this, these are the two places where he uses this. He says uh, that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Uh, I was thinking about it Friday night. We were in prayer here, and, and I was just thinking about that passage. I went back and I read through it, uh, where uh, the, the children of Israel had been complaining and grumbling against Moses and against God, and uh, both in that sense, because it talks about that, and, and that God judged them. And he sent these fiery serpents throughout the camp in Israel. It, the, as they're wandering in the wilderness, he sent these poisonous snakes, and they began to bite the people, and the people were dying. They were highly venomous, evidently. And, and so the people cry out to God. They cry out to Moses and cries out to God. God says, well, here's my provision. Take a, a, and make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole in the middle of the camp. That whoever looks to that pole, if they've been bitten, they'll be healed. And I just, I, I thought about that, guys. It's like, if I were there, and, I, and I, you know, I've been one of the grumblers, one of the complainers. I've been one of the people who was snake bit. And, and somebody came to me and said, you know, all you have to do, see that pole in the middle of the camp? All you have to do is look to that, and, and you're gonna, you'll live. You're going to be healed. You'll be healed right away. Uh, and, and how many people in that day and how many people in our day go, oh, pff, come on, I'm not going to look at that silly pole. Why would I want to do that? And I mean, I would become frantic. If I was one of the guys that had been healed, I mean, there would be a sense of urgency. <laughs> you're wonderful. There would be a sense of urgency about this snake on the pole. And that's what Jesus was talking about. He was telling Nicodemus, look, Nicodemus, you need to have a sense of urgency about this. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must I be lifted up. And here in verse 32, he says the same thing. That he says the Son of Man must be lifted up. Again, we, we've been looking at their idea of Messiah was somebody who would come in and set up a political kingdom. And he's saying, no, 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 I'm coming in, I'm setting up a kingdom that is much higher than that, a kingdom that actually has dominion over all the kingdoms on the earth. And, and, and in order to do that, I have to die. He uses a grain of wheat falling to the ground, that unless it falls to the ground and it dies, that it can't grow a, a whole bunch of wheat coming from one seed. And he uses that analogy with the Greeks that are here. And so 
as we look at this in, in verse 34, it says, the people answered him, they said, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Now, they had an idea of the Son of Man. Remember we talked about in Daniel. Daniel talks about one like the Son of Man coming to take care of these things. And so they would have an idea of the Son of Man. But again, their vision of his work would be short-sighted. It would fall short of the work that he originally intended to do. And, and so in verse 35, Jesus says to them, A little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. So he's saying, for just a little while longer, gang, the light is with you. I am the light. Walk by the light. Because if you don't, the default, the absence of light is darkness. And you will walk in darkness if you do not walk in the light. There is no, there, there's no twilight area here. You either walk in the light or you walk in darkness. He doesn't give gray in here. There's no gray area. And, and it's folly for us to think that there is. We'll talk about that as we go. So uh, it, it, the utter futility of this life, uh, when you really think about it, again, look at the, the, the culture that Jesus was in, the Hellenistic culture, the, the Greek culture, where it was just, they were bombarded with this whole pantheon of gods and all of this stuff. And then you look at the culture that we're in today, we're bombarded daily. I mean, I, I was looking at an election with somebody that was part of the LGBT whatever community last week. And the first thing they did was launch on Christians. It, it's like, Really? I mean, all we are simply doing is putting forth that of all of the problems that are out there, and if you look in, in our world, in our society, you look at what is the magnitude, the, the gravity of the problems that people are grappling with. And we of all people have the answers. It's not because I have the answers, but because God's word has the answers. And, and it's, it really come, becomes that simple. We, of all people, have the answers to the problems the world is dealing with, and we're simply in love going to share the fact that, that we do have the answers, and we're getting clobbered for it. And, and you know, folks, it, it, it may be in our lifetime that we actually have to make a firm stand and, and, and go against what we're being told we need to stand for. Because now our culture is trying to dictate what the church is all about. No, we're just not going to do it. If there is a higher law that's put forth in God's word, in God's economy, and it goes against man's law, I'm going to be like the guys in, in Acts chapter 4 when they got hauled before the religious leaders and they said, you can't talk about this Jesus anymore. Sound familiar? And they said, you know what? If you think we should listen to you more than we should listen to him, that's up to you. We can't not talk about Jesus. Period. End of story. Uh, you know, and, and as a pastor, do I have concerns? Of course I do. My only concern, though, is I really don't care. And, and I'm not going to sound, you know, I don't, sometimes <laughs> people sound brave because they're desperately ignorant, and I know that counts to me as well. But I, I, and I want to say this correctly, I really don't care. I really am going to stand up for what God says. And I'm not going to compromise that. I've had pressures come to bear on me 
since I've come to pastor this church to compromise that, and I will not do it. It would be a travesty for me. It would be a tragic thing for you. It, this is just not, it, we're just not going to go there. So I, I love the words of that worship song that we sing. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. And folks, we in the West have, uh, uh, we have a view of Christianity that sometimes I don't believe is all that accurate. And, and yes, we're born in the culture we're born into, and we live in a culture that we have, we're mainly free. We still live in the greatest country on earth. I'm convinced of that. And yet uh, the darkness is crouching in closer and closer, and there are things that are going on in our culture that are pressing us uh, more and more to try to conform, and, and, and we say no. And yet it really is true that we have to stand up. There has to be a place where we stand up. And we say, I'm not going to go along with that. And here's why. Because this, this Bible, this word of God that I believe is his inspired word, instructs me to stay close to him in the midst of this. There is a dividing line. And again, and that's a rabbit trail, I'll freely admit, this is not in my notes, but it truly is. The days are evil, and people would press us to have all kinds of wacky, weird, culturally relevant responses. But no, we're going to stand on God's word. Because we walk in the light. And, and, and no, we're not going to let the darkness overtake us. He says in verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke and he departed and was hidden from them. That, that was the last thing that he would have to say publicly uh, to the people as far as instruction to them. Now, he makes some comments later on here uh, and we'll get into that. But it was his last appeal to the Jews. Uh, talked last week that there was uh, definitely implied in that was a blessing for walking in the light. And there's a threat for not walking in the light. Uh, Jesus is very clear. If you don't walk in the light, you run the risk of darkness overtaking you. I think about 1 John chapter 1, uh, in verse 5, he says, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. And in him, there's no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But... If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I want to make a distinction here between friendship and fellowship. Okay, the word fellowship in the Bible, it's the same word that we get the word communion from. It's koinonia. That's the Greek word. You don't have to remember that. But it, what it means is, and the word communion means common union communion. All right. So we have a common union with our brothers, our sisters in Christ. That common union, when we share, when we have a potluck this afternoon and we're talking about the Lord, that's fellowship. And I'm not saying that friendship is a bad thing, but there is a difference between friendship and fellowship. We can be friends and talk about, you know, the roast at home or the, the ball game or all of those things. And that's all good. That's fine but it's not really genuinely fellowship. It's part of the fellowship that we share, friendship is, but true fellowship is the fellowship that we share in Christ. It's the common union that we share. And so when he talks about this, he says if we, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, the son cleanses us 
from all sin, that's the product of walking in the light. You can have friendship with anybody. And, and, you know, we have people that we know in the world, the people that are unbelieving in our families and all of that, and, and we have these relationships. But, you know, I have greater connection with you than I do my unbelieving blood family members. That's what Jesus said when they came and they said to him, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside. They want to talk to you. He said, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? But those who have heard and believe. See, he was talking about the fellowship that he shares. So with that, on to today's text as far as that goes. That was basically, that was a recap and we're half done. Um, looking now at John's summary. I'm going to read through this all together and then we'll stop. We'll, we'll kind of back up a little bit and unpack it a bit. I just realized something. Some of you guys moved from one side of the room to the other. I know, Dwight and Carolyn, you guys are, you guys are messing me up. It's like... I, <laughs> <laughs> you guys moved too. Did you guys just like make it a great, let's all switch sides and really mess up the pastors. Verse 37, but although he had done so, and this is John's summary here. John is summarizing now the public ministry of Jesus. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw the, his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So John summarizing here is saying, you know, primarily there, he, he shared this stuff and people just, they chose not to believe in him. Many uh, did not believe, but then many did believe. However, their belief was short-sighted uh, because again, they really were more concerned about what man thought than what God thought. Uh, and, and we'll talk about that as we go. Um, he quotes a couple of passages in Isaiah here. He quotes Isaiah 53, which is probably the greatest messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. Uh, it was part of my testimony of becoming a Christian, was reading that and coming to the understanding that that, that was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And it's like, how could this be? If this is not the word of God, there's no other explanation. And John uses that very purposefully here because remember, the guys were saying, well, we see in the law that, that the Messiah would remain forever, which he will. However, what John plugs in for the readers and for the people here is that, yes, Messiah will remain forever. However, what you're, what you're not getting is two things. Number one, as you harden your hearts, God will allow your heart to be hard and he will strengthen your resolve to not believe. Very serious. We'll talk about that in a minute. Number two, there is a portion of scripture, prophetic scripture, that talks about the suffering servant. And that is Isaiah chapter 53. You read that chapter. I mean, if you haven't read it recently, I would encourage you, read it in your own time. It is a total blessing. I mean, you see the person and the work. Remember, we talk about that. that is, those are the two things that we cannot get wrong. 
We have to understand who the person of Christ is, and we have to understand what the work of Christ is. The person and the work. Salvation hangs on those, and, and it is totally outlined for us in Isaiah 53. So John is bringing that clearly to them because they're questioning him on the basis of the Old Testament. So he brings them part of the Old Testament uh, as a way of illustrating to them, you're not looking at the full counsel of God. We do well to take the full counsel of God. And I've told people, I love teaching verse by verse through the Bible as we go, because it opens the door for us to be able to receive the full counsel of God. You're not going to get that on one Sunday. But you will get the full counsel of God, not because I'm all that smart, but because God's word is really, really well laid out. And as we go through verse by verse, we tackle the tough stuff, we tackle the really cool stuff, and everything in between. We're not going to leave anything undone. If we just built this church around uh, topical studies and we wanted to do this topic here and that topic there and this topic over here, yeah, we would get fed and, and we would grow because God would honor that, but we would never become really grounded in the Word of God. And, and, be, and it's not just so that, again, I mentioned last week, it's not so that we can just have head knowledge so that we can understand these books of the Bible and and be able to give a good book report, but it's so that that word would sink deep into our hearts, that we would come to a place of hiding his word in our hearts so that when things come along, when trials pop up, when our lives get pressed in on every side, when we are going through real tough things, that we can say, you know what, Lord? I know you've got this, and here's why. Your word tells me, da-da-da-da-da. And he speaks those things to us, we talk about the rhema and the logos. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he speaks to us. He wants to speak to us. And he speaks to us by his spirit and through his word. So let's, let's unpack this a little bit. Uh, in verse 37, he says, But although he had done so many signs before them, they didn't believe in him. Uh, remember, we looked at briefly the physical signs that Jesus did in this gospel that he's performed. Uh, we look at... and. Again, what is a sign? It is something that points to something else. Uh, those of you that know me know that I've been in the sign business for north of 40 years, and, and I, I know what a sign is. And it's, it, the sign, I mean, if I just went up and I said, oh, look at how wonderful that sign is. Oh, that's such a pretty sign. Oh, but no, I don't want to draw attention to the sign. I want the sign to tell me what it's pointing to. It's instruction. It's something that's supposed to declare something about the sign, about the nature and the character of the one it's pointing to. And so as he gives these physical signs, turns water into wine, we see he knows how to bend the laws of nature. He knows how to bend the laws of physics. He can. They're his. Uh, that it, he did healings. The nobleman's son healed him from a distance. Uh, the man at Bethesda, uh, the man who was born blind, uh, he fed the 5,000. He walked on the water. He rose Lazarus from the dead after four days when he really stunk. He gave verbal signs. And in this gospel, we've seen that he has declared himself using the covenant name for God out of Exodus chapter 3 from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, ego ami. It means I am. And we see these profound I am statements that Jesus makes throughout this gospel up until this point. Again, summarizing. I am the bread of life. I am 
the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the door to the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And with Mary and Martha there, when their brother had died, Mary, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Profound sayings that these people would plug into his claim to not just who he was, but what he was about. Because he, it's, it's, that, it's not that he brings love to us. He is love. He is the embodiment of love. He is the embodiment of grace. He is the embodiment of life. Uh, and so these signs were very important that people come to a full understanding of his nature, his character, as he defined himself through these I am sayings. Uh, he did more signs in, in John chapter 20. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Uh, and, and it says, again, it says they didn't believe him, even though he did so many signs in verse 37. Why? Because miracles don't and never will produce a full-blown faith. They don't. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, I was reading something he said uh, yesterday, and I thought this was good. He says, no sign had been wrought or could be wrought that could bring complete revelation and complete conviction. The sign equal to that had yet to be wrought. Because the greatest sign that Jesus would do is yet to come, when once for all he would die for the sins of humanity. And that being the perfect man, death wouldn't hold him, and he would rise from the dead. Verse 38, and that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, the arm of the Lord indicates, when you see the arm of the Lord in Scripture, it's an in, in, indicator of power, okay? Uh, in Exodus chapter 6, and you might want to make note of this, Exodus 6, 6 through 8, I call it the gospel in Exodus. And, and it's a powerful passage, and part of that, it's God is telling Moses how he's going to redeem Israel. And he says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great judgments. Uh, and, and again, in, in Isaiah, he talks about this, who is the arm of the Lord, to whom has it been revealed? Uh, in Isaiah 53, 1, that's what this is. And, and Jesus was the fulfillment of that. Again, John is making sure that the people, he's primarily been speaking to a Greek audience here, and so he hasn't gone into the Old Testament a lot. And yet here, he needs to make sure that people are making the connection that this is the, the, the Messiah who is prophesied of old. This is the one that Israel had been waiting for. This is the one, this is the fulfillment of all of our Old Testament pointings to this one who would come that would take away sin. The one sacrifice, once for all. These people, the Greeks wouldn't have a really well-developed understanding of the Levitical system and the sacrifices and all of that. But he could point them to the fact that these scriptures were being fulfilled. Jesus is the arm of the Lord that's been predicted. That's his point here. And, and how had he revealed himself? How had the arm of the Lord been revealed? By his signs, by his teachings, by the things that he said and the things that he did. So, Verse 39, therefore they could not believe. What do you mean they couldn't believe? 
Because Isaiah said again, verse 40, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. John is saying this is the fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 6. It's the call of Isaiah into the ministry where Isaiah was called by God. He was taken to the throne room of God. The beautiful scene there in Isaiah 6. In the, king, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord lofty and exalted, seated on a throne. The train of his robe filled the temple and then the temple filled with smoke. And he sees these beautiful angelic beings back and forth on each side of the, the throne, the seraphim, and, and one of them takes a coal from the altar and touches Isaiah's lips to cleanse him for the work that God was commissioning him to do. Uh, so, so we see in that, that and I, I could just teach that the rest of the time because I love that, Isaiah is called, cleansed, and commissioned. Okay? What he is talking about here, when he was commissioned uh, in, in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, well, I'm going to get ahead of myself. The point is, I'll get to that in a minute, but this was fulfilled. And what God is saying is, they can't believe. He has blinded their eyes. He's hardened their hearts, lest they should see. So does that make God evil for doing this? Absolutely not. Does God harden people's hearts? Yeah, he does. I decide if I want to rabbit trail on that. A period of time in my life, again, just going to be transparent, where I allowed my soul to become lean as a Christian. And as I allowed my soul to become lean, I didn't ever walk away from the Lord, but I stopped living for Him. And I will confidently say I stopped living for Him, and I'm not proud of it. And I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, there was something that scared me to death because I knew this. I was really frightened as I was not living for the Lord that I would wake up one morning and just feel better. Here's what I mean by that. God is strengthening these people's resolve to not believe. He is strengthening their rebellion. He's saying, you want to be rebellious, you go ahead and be rebellious. He's giving them over. There is a point where God will stop striving with man. And I know what that would look like in human terms. I was under conviction. John, come back. Just come back to me. I love you, my son. I just, I want to shower your life with my presence, with my blessings, with my sustenance, and all of those things. Just come back. Turn. And what frightened me the most was that I would get up one morning and what the result of God saying, okay, you want to be in rebellion? Go ahead and be in rebellion. Is he would withdraw his conviction from me. And in withdrawing his conviction from my soul, that pressure I would just feel better. I'm good. And it scared me. It frightened me to death, guys. It really did. And, and, and you know, when I, and I mean, I love to teach Luke 15 as the prodigal son. And I, you know, I wasn't out eating pig food, but close. Um, 
But coming back to my father's house and, and for him to meet me on the road and to fall on my neck and kiss me, I mean, I love that story because that is a guy that his father never gave up on him. These are people that he was never their father. They've rejected Jesus every step of the way. And he is essentially saying, I am going to strengthen you in your own resolve to reject me. It's exactly what he did with Pharaoh. Remember, if you look back in, in, uh, in Moses' dealings with Pharaoh, it says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. God never takes away someone's ability to choose him. He never does that with these people. That door would be open till their last breath. But essentially, he got to a point in striving with them where he said, I'm not going to strive with you anymore. If you want it, you can have it. Because God is serious about the gospel. He's serious about your life. He's serious about mine. And he will not strive forever when somebody is consistently pushing against him. And, and we'll talk about that as we go along. I, I don't want to misrepresent this. I want to represent how serious God is. I also want to represent that uh, he tells us in his word, it is not his will that any would perish, that, that all would come to repentance and step into his kingdom. And he is really serious about this. He is so serious that he sent his son to die and to, to just continually reject that runs the risk of somebody saying, of, of God saying, okay, you want to reject? I'm going to honor your choice to reject. Go ahead and reject. God has engineered into each of us the ability to sovereignly choose. Bring this up a, a note <laughs> or two. I mean, we do have the ability to choose. I mean, we choose left or right. We choose hot or cold. Uh, I was making my notes. I kind of laughed. Right? I wrote, we choose chocolate or chocolate. Because um, <laughs> I like chocolate. The point in this is worship must come from a free will. That's the point. He calls us to a life that is marked by worship of him. And it has to come from a free will. Uh, I was thinking about this. It, he foreknows all. That he foreknows doesn't lessen man's responsibility. He sees the whole thing from the start to the end. He sees, he sees Adam in the garden. He sees the end of the age. That he sees it all because he's God and time is something that he owns doesn't lessen the responsibility of these people or the responsibility that we have to choose him because heaven will not be filled with people that don't want to be there to worship him. He wants the people that choose. Conversely, he doesn't send anyone to hell. Hell exists. Yes, hell is real, and it exists. God doesn't send people to hell. People have to work pretty hard to send themselves because the whole thing is in the act of rejecting the gospel, rejecting the work, the person of Christ. I was thinking, of my, I've, on Super Bowl Sunday this year, this is, this is kind of a funny story. I was thinking about foreknowledge. Um, we went over to Stacy's parents' house and her brother and his wife, they live in Dallas, were there, her brother Steve and, and Willie. Hi. Um, they watch this sometimes. Um, they, were, they were there and the Super Bowl was going on, but we decided we were going to play, I think it was gin or something, we were playing cards. And so we're all sitting around the table and laughing. Well, I popped my phone out of my pocket and I checked the score of the game and I said, hey, the, the game's over. And I thought her brother was going to come out of his chair telling me, don't you dare tell me how it came out. 
And so, you know, we sat afterwards watching this thing on the DVR, and I already know who won, and I'm thinking, I have foreknowledge. And I could just totally spoil the whole thing. I, but I, it was funny because it's like, don't tell me. Don't, and I'm not real sports-oriented, so I was good. I was going to tell them. I, I just thought, well, I'll just let you guys know that, you know. And um, I don't even remember who was playing. I'm that keyed in. But the point is, I thought, you know, I have foreknowledge. I know how this game is going to end. It's recorded. And, and, and yet, that's not going to affect the outcome at all. I mean, how shocked would I be if I had watched it on my phone and I watched it on the television and the other, the other team wins? But the point is, is that God has foreknowledge, that he has foreknowledge. He has also sovereignly chosen to stay out of the realm of influencing he will influence the choice by his Holy Spirit when he comes and, and as he reveals himself to us, but he allows the choice to remain with us. That's the point. When we choose consistently to reject, we run the risk of him saying, okay, you want it, you've got it. He doesn't, there's no pleasure in that. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, the Bible tells us. So again, understand God's heart. I want to walk very carefully on this line because he's very, very serious about us accepting or rejecting and he knows these guys are rejecting and he says all right you know i'm going to quote isaiah the prophet here go ahead reject and i will strengthen your rejection because you've chosen to not accept the work of my son you guys know what an automaton is a a, a interesting word and a ton of automaton is a machine that performs a function according to a predetermined set of coded instructions. Uh, an automaton, God doesn't want heaven to be filled with automatons. Is, you know, oh, hallelujah, praise you, Lord, hallelujah. You know, it, it, he doesn't want people that are programmed that way. He wants people that choose heaven. So how do we see this hardness of heart playing out in our culture and in the world around us? Uh, in many ways, let's look at outside of the church. We see that people are openly hostile. I talked about that. And there is a great deal of mounting hostility against the church in the days in which we live. Don't be shocked. I mentioned that before. Don't be shocked at it. Don't be shocked if somebody gets up in your face. As a matter of fact, I submit, I heard a guy say once, if you don't have people getting in your face, maybe you're not standing up enough. But the point is, people are openly hostile. The other thing, how, how do people not choose not to believe? How has this worked out? Uh, I look at atheism. Atheism cracks me up. Because if you look at, and I don't mean it, I don't mean that in, in a derogatory way, but it doesn't make sense. It's illogical. The assumption you have to make, in order to say there is no God, which is, that's just a way to, I don't want to deal with God, so I'm just going to, I'm going to proclaim there is no God. But if, if you look at that, scientifically, you take, you have, let's say you use the rules of empirical evidence, that nothing is ever 100%, it's 99.999%, whatever. You have to assume that you can rule out the existence of God. The only way that you can rule out the existence of God is to have all knowledge. The only one that has all knowledge is God. So it's illogical. It makes no sense. There is no way you can get there from here. But it's not really about making uh, a claim there is no God, it's really, when you want to peel it back and look at it, it's making a claim, I don't want to look. So therefore, I'm just going to take the position there is no God. I'm going to reject. Dangerous position. Now, the thing is apathy out there in the world. 
And, and I have as a subcategory this agnosticism. To be agnostic, I don't know. Well, I don't know if there's a God or not. Well, you know, do you really not know or do you really just not care? Because when somebody proclaims themselves to be agnostic, they're saying, I don't know if there's a God or not. But they're essentially saying, and I'm really not going to take the time to find out. It's a way, it's a veiled way. Our hearts are so deceitful in this stuff. It's a veiled way to just say no to God. I'm agnostic. I don't know if there is or not. I want to kind of buy some insurance in case there is. But I don't want to live for God. I don't want to acknowledge that he is. And that he is, as the Bible says, the rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And so I'm going to be agnostic. It's a veiled way of rejecting. How about inside the church? 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Peter talks about false prophets and false teachers secretly bringing in destructive heresies. Inside the church, yeah, you've got to be really careful where you hang your hat. If, if the Word of God is not going forth, have nothing to do with it. Uh, I, and again, we could come in and we could just have a lot of topical studies and, and you know, I could make you guys feel all warm and fuzzy inside and we could go home and, and really not have our lives be confronted or changed. Um, Peter says in, in, in that chapter, he talks about false teachers being wells without water. They're dry wells. Supposed to have water, so they have the external look of a well, but there's nothing there. There's nothing su to sustain. Uh, he, he says there's lots of activity. There's hype, but there's no nourishment. Uh, again, there's so many out there that are, that are caught up in this deal that that they're just delivering stuff. Galatians chapter 2, Paul talks about false brethren secretly coming in, and they come in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, that they could bring us into bondage. I'm very jealous about the health of our body. Um, I'm very jealous about making sure that when people come in, and it's not like anybody's under a microscope, but that, that they don't come in and begin to sow discord. That they don't come in and begin to try to peddle an agenda that's other than that which we find in the Word of God. I mean, we have room for strong personalities, not so strong personalities, everybody in between. There's, there's no judgment in that. But it's come in, sit at the feet of Jesus, learn. Let us get to know you, uh, get to know us, and just enjoy where you're at with the Lord. Enjoy the walk that he wants to have with you. Don't come in with an agenda. Don't start trying to pull people to yourself, to your agenda. Uh, that's a dangerous thing. Uh, and and it, 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 I haven't seen it here, but it will raise my eyebrows because I want to make sure that, again, I, I'm not going to lord it over anybody's faith. But as a pastor, I take very seriously that part of what God has called me to do as an under-shepherd is to protect the flock. So, uh, destructive heresies. I want to make sure that we, we keep those out. Another's divisiveness. Uh, factions, getting into all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, I've heard of ch churches splitting, splitting over the, the color of the carpet. And it's like, come on. Yeah, we're all grown up, so we can get over that stuff. Lesser doctrines. Apathy. Uh, I, you know, I totally believe that apathy breeds apathy. People that are apathetic about the things of God, 
Ah, well, you know, don't challenge me too much. I'm going to go to church, but I really don't know if I want to do business with God. And if I really want to have ears to hear, I want to take that message to heart if the Holy Spirit's piercing my heart in some way. Um, I read something yesterday. The guy said, some pastors are exchanging entertainment for exhortation and gimmicks for the gospel. It's true. That breeds apathy. If I want to be an apathetic pastor and just feed pablum to the church, I'm going to get people that are really not invested in their own walk, their own development, their own spiritual health. And I'm not saying that, that I'm going to be the only influence in your life, but I'm saying that if we as a church, if that's what we stand for, that's what we're going to get. I would much rather have the word of God be hard at times and convict my heart and show me that there are areas that I may need to get together, that I may need to make corrections and ask God to help me, to equip me, to, to come alongside because I'm under conviction about something. Because by his spirit, through his word, he's doing that work. Then to walk out of here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday just feeling good and never really doing business with him. That's not... God's design for the church. It's not his design for the body of Christ. So what does that mean? It means when he exhorts, I'll exhort. I'm not going to entertain you. What it means is the gospel's going out. We're not going to rely on gimmicks. We're not going to get into programs and all that stuff. We just want to keep it simple. We want to keep the main thing, the main thing. I think about... Um, Jesus' attitude towards the church at Laodicea, and I'm going to leave that one to Harvey. Verse 41, these things Isaiah said when he saw the glory of him who spoke of him, uh, his glory and spoke of him. Uh, again, Isaiah 6, beautiful passage. Um, essentially, John is relating that Israel prophetically was in apostasy. They were rejecting the message in Isaiah's day. There was an immediate fulfillment to that because things were a mess when Isaiah prophesied, but Things were also a mess when Jesus was on the earth and John's bringing that out. They're a mess today and we can apply this directly to our life, to our culture. That's the point. Verse 42, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed him in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. Thus they should be put out of the synagogue. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now it's interesting, in verse 26, Jesus had explained to them that if anyone served him, that they would receive honor from God. And right on the tail end of that, they're saying, he's saying, you know, they love the praise of men more than, the, than to be honored by God. So where were, their aligned, where were their priorities? Where were their hearts aligned? Protecting their thing. Not allowing the word of God to penetrate. Secret discipleship, that's what I call this. They wanted to be secret disciples. But that can't last. And I'd submit something to you, brothers and sisters, that it's a contradiction in terms to be a secret disciple. I've heard people over the years say, well, my faith is very private and I just want to keep it to myself. And I respect that. I mean, you know, to, a, to a point, and I'm not here to, to make that a hill to die on. But uh, here's a quote I came across. Either the secrecy kills the discipleship or the discipleship kills the secrecy. You, you really can't stay quiet. Jesus said that. I mean, it's not my opinion. He said, you know what? You don't light a lamp and hide it under a bushel. You let it shine. 
And, and that doesn't mean that we let it shine obnoxiously, but we do let it shine. Wrapping up here, uh, Jesus' summary, verses 44 to 50. I'll read them, make a few comments. We'll run over a few minutes, but I really want to wrap up this chapter. And remember, Jesus never wrote anything. This is not Jesus' writing here, but this is Jesus' speaking. John is quoted, quoting Jesus' words here and what Jesus had to say at this point. Verse 44, And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words is that, has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. So let's just, again, let's unpack this a little bit. His last words to the public uh, in, in this gospel. Uh, he has already made his last appeal, and these are the last comments that he publicly made. It starts out with saying that he cried out. Uh, he didn't do that very often. If you look in the gospels, that when Jesus cried out, he had something he wanted to say publicly, and he's making a public proclamation in this. The last time we saw it in this gospel, remember, it was during the solemn procession at the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, the, the, the priests had gone up to the altar and they've got these pitchers of water they've gotten from the pool of Siloam. And it was the great day, there was the, the silent, the solemn procession where instead of all the hoopla and the shouting and the singing and all that, it would have been dead quiet when Jesus cries out, drink the water that I give you. And from your innermost being will gush forth rivers of living water. And, and he says that when it was dead quiet in the temple courts there. Thousands and thousands of people standing around. All stone surfaces. His voice would have resonated across that place and he would have gotten their attention. And he did. Talk about ticking off the religious leaders. Yeah, they really set their jaws against him on that day. But now he cries out one last time here. He, he cries out and he says, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. In other words, I am co-equal. If you are seeing me, you're seeing God. If you're seeing God, you better be seeing me. Because he who sees me sees him who sent me. It's the same thing when... when Jesus is there. Uh, there's so many examples. I'm trying not to go too far over, so I'm going to resist. But this is why they want to kill him. They're saying he makes himself out to be God. And he cries out, and, and again, he is revealing truly his nature, his character, his purposes, his intentions, all of that wrapped into one in these last comments. And there is no way that these guys could mistake or misunderstand what he's about. The thing that they would misunderstand is what he was about to do to remedy the situation. And he says in verse 46, I've come as a light into the world and whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. There's that concept of light again. We saw that in the beginning of this gospel, John hits the ground running and he talks about Jesus being a light. 
and that he came as a light to the world. He came and tabernacled among men to bring light. And, and they didn't have light bulbs back then. We're talking about a light that he would be the illumination of God, that he is bringing, to, his purpose is to come and to illuminate men's hearts, men's minds, to the reality that God, number one, exists, and number two, he's concerned about the affairs of humanity, and that he comes into this world as a light in a dark place. What does it say in John chapter 1 that men's response was? And they, didn't, they, they were repulsed by the light because their deeds are evil. They, they didn't want to see the light. They don't want to hear the truth. We live in a world that does the same thing, gang. It, the light of God, the illumination that he brings is very unwanted in some circles. And the reason why people are hostile about it is because light exposes darkness. When, I, when, when my light shines, there are times where I can walk into a room, I don't have to say a word. And it's not because I have all that light, but the light of Christ working and living inside of me, I can walk into a room and I can see the change on people's faces. They don't want to look. So he says one more time, I am the light. And he's, he's beckoning to these people, while the light is with you, come and believe Trust that I am the illumination of God to you. That I am here because he loves you. I'm here because he does not want you to perish forever. 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, You're all sons of light, sons of the day, or not of the night or of the darkness. Again, it's really a simple choice. You either follow Jesus and walk in the light or you walk in darkness. No twilight in God's economy. Verse 47, And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. That's an interesting passage. Think about it, guys. If Jesus only came to judge, it wouldn't have been necessary for him to come at all. Again, if Jesus' only purpose was to come and to judge, he would not have needed to come. The law of Moses had already judged all men. That God had already judged the world. Remember the woman caught in adultery? She's there thrust down at his feet. And he says, where are your accusers? Says, well, they're gone, Lord. That's significant. She calls him Lord. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. He didn't come to condemn. He came to save. Because if he came to condemn, there was no need for him to come at all. The condemnation was already there. He who rejects me, verse 48, does not receive my words. Interesting. I'm going to read this and I'll read it again. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Now, there are two Greek words at play here, and I want you to catch this. He who rejects me and does not receive my words, rhema, spoken word, he who rejects me and does not receive my rhema, has that which judges him, the word, logos, written word, that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. 
Interesting wordplay here in the original language, gang. Rhema means sayings. So if you're not receiving me based on these things that I'm telling you, the body of my words, the word of God, will judge you. That's what he's saying. You're not off the hook. You can reject me now. And, but that's, you can reject the things I'm telling you. And I'll tell you what, the with, the in, and the upon of the Holy Spirit, the with aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry and revealing Christ, revealing people's needs and convicting people of their sin and drawing them to him to make a decision is real. And that's the words of God, the rhema of God. He comes to people and he begins to work in their hearts to show them their need. He's not about empowering someone's life before the conversion. He can't come in. It's not a cleansed vessel. So you reject his words and his word will condemn you. That's how it works. That's how God's economy is. There are inescapable, the point is, there are inescapable consequences for rejecting Jesus. If we haven't seen that in this passage, then we need to talk afterwards. <laughs> but I trust you have. Verse 49, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. Uh, the word say, ramata, uh, essentially what he's saying is he is perfectly submitted to the Father. And through him being perfectly submitted to the Father, he could speak with perfect authority. Verse 50, last verse. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. It's fascinating and wonderful to me that the last words of Jesus' public ministry are words of life. Yes, he is speaking some pretty hard things in these passages. And yet his last word on the matter is the word that the Father has given me is everlasting life. That's the offer. Believe in me, commit to me, entrust your heart to me, live forever. Live forever. Folks, we're going to get out of this place and we're going to be able to, we'll still be able to be together. Some of you are going, really? No, I'm kidding. But, <laughs> but I mean, we'll still be able to be together. This is just a temporary place. This is a temporary home. We get to spend eternity in his presence and we will know one another. What a glorious thing that is for the children of God. That he has given us the right to be sons of God. What a, what a fabulous message this is. And as he wraps this up, I'm sure that his heart was breaking for the rejection that he was experiencing, but he was excited. How do we know that? Hebrews 12 tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame. And when he had made an atonement for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this oh so brief look. I feel like we've just raced through this passage. There's so much to unpack here. And yet, Lord, I believe it's sufficient for us. And so thank you, Lord, for illuminating your word to us. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us the ability to respond rightly. We don't understand all of the intricacies of this, Lord. We don't understand at what point you give someone over. We don't understand so much. And yet we do understand enough. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us uh, the privilege to be called your sons, your daughters. Let us represent you well 
out there in a dying world that doesn't have answers. Let us represent you well in our families, on our jobs, with those that you've uh, called us to, to simply have a part in their lives. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this message in John. Uh, thank you, Lord, uh, that as we move forward from here, we begin to look at John teaching his disciples. And, and I pray you would just prepare our hearts for that. We're just grateful, Lord, that we get to be a part of your kingdom, to be your kids, and pray, Father, you would just continue to pour out your spirit upon us. We commit ourselves afresh to you, in Jesus' name.